Let's now turn for our scripture reading to the Gospel of John. John 5, we'll read the first 15 verses, which also make our text for this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning uh, I'm preaching one of uh, five sermons that I intend to preach from this fifth chapter of John. Uh, you may know that uh, the Gospel of John records miracles and numerous lengthy discussions or discourses between uh, Jesus and uh, the Jewish leaders, um, typically referred to simply as the Jews in these passages, accounts that are not found in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And in uh, chapter 9 of John's Gospel, there's a close connection uh, between a healing miracle uh, that was performed on the Sabbath and the hostile and unbelieving reaction of the Jews. And in both instances, that reaction became the occasion for some of the greatest testimonies of our Lord Jesus about himself. As the Son of God, and as the only Savior. That's what's so remarkable about uh, this, this passage before us. It's exhilarating in its revelation of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23, we read the words that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And that is uh, Jesus' explanation or elaboration on the fact that the Father has committed all judgment into his hands. He is the one who will judge the world. And indeed, he will be honored. And all ought to honor him now as the one to whom all judgment has been committed. But we could take this language that all should honor the Son because it, in a way, captures the message of this whole chapter. A chapter about Jesus as 
as the Son of God, the Son of the Father, as the one who is working as the Father works, as one who is equal with the Father, as one having life in himself, just as the Father has life in himself, as one who is doing the works of the Father. And it all starts with this miracle of healing that we're focusing on this morning. Uh, Jesus works a great miracle on the Sabbath. And I call your attention to two words in that theme, works and Sabbath. Jesus works on the Sabbath. And just retain that thought because that really introduces a theme that we find uh, throughout the rest of this chapter. But we begin by considering this lame man as he appears before us in this uh, story, in his misery as a lame man, unable to walk. And we find that he is just one among a great multitude of miserable people. As a Jewish man under the law, uh, Jesus faithfully went up uh, to Jerusalem for those annual feasts that were prescribed in the law. And there were three annual feasts. And uh, we're not told which one of those feasts it was that brought Jesus from Galilee up to Jerusalem, whether the Feast of uh, Pentecost or of Tabernacles or the Feast of Weeks. But Jesus came up to the feast. And uh, in the northern vicinity of, uh, of the temple area, there is what was called the Sheep Gate. And it was probably named that because that's where people would bring their their sacrifices uh, to be sacrificed uh, at the temple. And we're also told that there was a pool there at which, uh, in the shade of these porches, uh, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, uh, waiting for the moving of the water, we're told. And then the next verse gives an explanation. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And we take this verse and this description as as uh, simply presenting the facts of this situation. And uh, in other words, this is not simply a description of some superstitious views that people had about this pool, nor is it uh, their naive interpretation of what, in fact, was like a hot springs. And uh, and some people found uh, healing power in these hot springs. That wouldn't explain how only the first one who uh, made it to the pool after it began to move, some might say, well, when it began to bubble up, that doesn't explain how only the first one was healed. And so we'll take this as it stands as simply an objective accounting of the reality that God showed his healing power periodically, through the ministry of an angel, in this manner. And so we're not looking at uh, any kind of superstitious ideas or uh, uh, gullibility, but rather we're looking at simply a, refor- a reporting of facts. And they are facts that gave, gave some, and we might say some meager hope, to those many, many people around this pool. Meager hope, especially for someone who was unable to walk. 
But here he was, this lame man, with hardly a hope in the world, you might say. He had been lame for 38 years, we're told. Now, in the book of Acts, in the third chapter, we're also told of a lame man uh, who was 40 years old at the time uh, in which he was healed from a lameness that he suffered from birth. He never knew what it was like to walk. And we're not told that specifically of this man. Uh, we're not really told how old he was. No doubt he was older than Jesus by around eight years anyway. He might have been considerably older. We're not told that he was lame from birth. He may well have suffered an accident. Maybe as a toddler he was hit it was hit by a cart, or he fell out of a tree as a young boy, or or maybe he suffered a, a an accident on the job. We're just simply not told. But we are told that he was lame for thirty eight years. And it looks like he was living a life of uh bare survival. We don't know if he spent his days and nights there. We don't know if somebody was so kind as to bring him there on occasion or take him to some uh, home. We're not, we're not given such details, but we're given a picture of a man that's in a pretty miserable condition. And his misery was compounded by, by the fact that he appears to be alone. That was his explanation to Jesus. He has no one to, to uh, help him carry him into that pool even should he observe it being stirred. Someone else is going to come first. He uh, has no nurse attending him. He he doesn't have a caregiver. He can't call dads. He is pretty much left on his own, unable to walk. Did anyone really care for this man? We are not given information. Did anyone really care for his soul? We don't know. His situation actually appears quite hopeless, doesn't it? And yet there he was. There he was by this pool as the, the one place of, of a slight chance of somehow experiencing help and healing. He's clinging, you might say, to a very vague possibility and I think that's worth reflecting on in itself, because I believe that that really is kind of a sad picture of what it is to be lost and without God in this world, with nothing really but but a wish or a dream of uh, some positive change at some point, perhaps entering people's lives. And I have no doubt that that uh, that many, perhaps most people live this kind of life with some vague hope that things will get better as they experience the reality of the troubles, the dissatisfactions, or the downright miseries and heartaches and pains and hopelessness of this life. I believe that because I don't believe that people can altogether escape the sense that they were made for better things. I believe that According to Scripture, all people retain the glimmerings of the image of God upon them. And so even though they may have been schooled in the lie that they're simply the product of a kind of random evolution, and philosophically, by any kind of coherent worldview, their life does not have any meaning. How could it if they're the result of random chance? How could there be any kind of ultimate right or wrong? How could there be any real purpose 
But people, sometimes despite their philosophy, they really can't live that way. And they can't escape the hope, the possibility that something far better is going to come along someday. Some kind of redemption, you might, you might say, to use biblical language, because people sometimes use biblical language to describe their hopes. And I have no doubt that many people don't rule out the possibility even of some profound religious change coming into their lives. And perhaps the possibility of at some point, if things really get bad, to take the matter of religion seriously and really inquire about it. Maybe as a last resort, if things really get horrible. And I have no doubt that there are many people who have left the Christian church and who have left the faith, who live in that vague hope and who would be horrified at the thought that there is no return, there's no coming back. There is no hope for you in the things you've been taught as a child. If they were given the choice to close that door, absolutely, they would probably resist it because they still maintain some thought that someday, maybe, they will find salvation, that they'll find assurance of forgiveness and life, that something will happen to them to make a difference. In a way, you might see this whole multitude as, as kind of a picture of that, because there was a lot of people there. And they were all uh, suffering physically and all living with this hope that somehow, some, by some possibility, they might be close enough. They might be the ones who can get in the water and be healed, secretly waiting for a miracle. They don't know what or how. It may occur, and I do believe that that describes a lot of people in this world in which we live, and we ought to be mindful of that. And we ought to be mindful that we carry a message of hope and of good news, and we ought to be eager to share that message. And we don't determine the effectiveness or the fruitfulness of that message in their response, because we know that God is able to use the truth, and that's always what he does when he awakens people to hope, when he awakens people like that prodigal son in a far country who comes to himself and says, here I am in my misery in a pigsty. And in my father's house, there's bread enough and to spare even for his hired servants. I will arise and go to my father. You may have come in here this morning. Maybe you've come off the street. I don't know your situation. Maybe you're brought here by family members. But the reality is that you have no certain hope in yourself, but yet you maintain this vague idea that somehow, someday, something might happen to make a change in your life. Maybe you'll get saved. And in a way, those kinds of dreams and hopes keep a lot of people just plugging along, even though their philosophy gives them no hope. They they just persevere, sometimes in very, very difficult, painful Situations where things are getting worse, but they retain some hope that somehow things will change. Here is a lame man in his misery. And brothers and sisters, it's into this miserable situation that Christ Jesus comes. The revelation of Christ brings true light to the soul. 
not with some vague possibility of things somehow getting better, but the, the true answer and the only true answer to the heart's undefined longing. And it comes in the form of gospel proclamation by which Christ himself, as it were, stands before sinners and says, come to me. Here and your soul shall live. Come in your thirst. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. That's what gospel preaching is. It's Christ coming to sinners in their need and holding before them the one and only way of life. No more waiting around. No more wishful thinking. It maybe, maybe I'll get lucky someday. Maybe I'll go to heaven after all, somehow, some way. It doesn't get any clearer. It doesn't get any simpler. It doesn't get any more true. There is no more effective method than hearing the word of the Lord Jesus who addresses every one of us in the reality of our misery and says, look for no one or nothing else. but Come to me. Come to me and live. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in this last time. A living hope. So Jesus came to this man, the mighty miracle worker. And the greatness of Jesus shines out in this passage. It shines out in his sovereign grace. This man was a sad case. We're given that in the description of him. But that doesn't mean that he was the worst case there. That doesn't mean that there was no one else that suffered as much pain or disability. There were blind people. There were paralyzed people. There are a multitude of them. His situation was not necessarily the most heart-wrenching. And I can imagine him knowing that full well. And perhaps being aware of that as he, as he tells the story. He says, you know, he walked by so many people and he came to me. He spoke to me. He healed me. Why me? He was a subject of God's mercy and grace. He received the compassionate attention of the Lord Jesus. We're told in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time without interviewing him, and I assume without interviewing anyone else about him, Jesus knew this man. He knew the reality of those long years of living with immobility and all the suffering that that entailed. And we're given notice of this because clearly Jesus was moved by that. He had compassion upon him. And he spoke to him in such a way as to awaken him to a new possibility. He said, do you want to be made well? His desire to be made well had very likely been rather dulled over the years. Of course he wanted to be well, but realistically, he he knew the situation. 
that, that when the water stirred, there was always someone that could actually walk into it. And he had no one to bring him into this pool to be healed. And yet, it's hard to imagine this man listening to Jesus and hearing his question without the possibility of hope rising up in his heart. Why is he asking me this question? Maybe he'll help me. Maybe he will be so kind as to assist me to be the first one in the water. If, if that water stirs and if, and if he can get me there in time. It's not unusual, is it, for the Lord to prepare people for salvation by bringing them to face the reality of their need and by awakening them to a real hope, a, a reasonable ground of expectation that there is help and salvation for, that's what the prodigal son did, right? He began to reflect. He thought. He thought about the resources in his father's house. And I have no doubt that God often fills people with a longing that does send them on a quest for God. Because the Holy Spirit's at work. It may not yet have brought them to true conversion, but the Holy Spirit is perhaps bringing them under the power of the law, convicting them of their misery. Maybe they're, they're kicking against the goads like Paul was. Before his conversion, even as a persecutor, he was facing some conviction. And we know that from Jesus' words to him on the road to, to Damascus. It is hard for you to kick against the, the goats. That's, that's what cattle do when they're being prodded. They're being poked. And Paul somehow, some way was being poked and prodded, perhaps with conviction. Maybe he was awakening to the fact that all his righteousness and all his zeal was not giving him peace or assurance. And they were perhaps memories that were haunting him somewhat about someone who appeared to have great assurance. And the Lord is working, and he works in that way. And perhaps in Jesus' words to this man, he was indeed preparing him to receive an abundance of grace in his healing, because that's what happened, right? A sudden, a complete healing. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. It's like those other commands that we encounter by our Lord Jesus Christ. As, for example, when he speaks to dead Lazarus stinking in the tomb for four days. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Or he says to this dead little 12-year-old girl, little girl, arise. Or a man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. And they all obeyed. They all did the impossible in terms of their condition. And that was exactly the case with this man. Take up my bed and walk. That's exactly my problem. I can't do that. If there weren't a, a, a kind of divine power that went along with this word, awakening this man to the reality of the authority with which Jesus spoke, those words would have sounded ridiculous and cruel. No doubt that's how the call of the gospel sounds to people that are dead in their sins. They, they can't comprehend it. When you speak to modern people and you summon them to come to the Lord Jesus, they don't know what you're talking about. They really can't 
understand. It really doesn't connect inwardly. It doesn't come with a kind of authority that impels them to a response, to a living Savior, to call upon Him. They think perhaps maybe in terms of believing some truths about Jesus or being more religious, but the idea of coming before this living Savior in their need, calling upon Him, believing that He is able to deliver them, to give them life, to change them. That happens when almighty power is put forth through the preaching of the gospel. Without that, people can't grasp it. Without that, people will... We'll talk of a come-to-Jesus moment, right? That's language of our day. You can find it in Merriam-Webster. Oh, I had my come-to-Jesus moment. And people use that to describe, uh, uh, yes, a discovery of some kind and a discovery that brought about change, but it's used in ways that are so contrary to what it means to come to Jesus. Oh, I had a come-to-Jesus moment when I realized that I could really be anything that I wanted to be. Listen to the way this language is used in our day. It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. And the language come to Jesus moment is kind of a mockery of something they do not understand. Because if they ever came to Jesus, they wouldn't use such language for such trivial changes or discoveries that do not involve the conversion of their lives to the Savior. A come-to-Jesus moment happens when the word of the gospel penetrates their minds and hearts with such authority and grace as to impel a response of faith such that they're never going to be the same again. That's when the gospel reaches the hearts of people. This man did exactly what is impossible for him in his own strength. Think of it. 38 years of being lame. Think of the, the, the loss of bone mass. Think of atrophied muscles. Think of shriveled legs. Think of tendons that have, have not been used for years and years and years. And suddenly he gets up and walks, picks up that, that little mat, that pallet that he'd been laying on. Nothing explains that. Nothing compares to these so-called faith-healing uh, charades where people are trotted out who had a sore back and, oh, no, they can stand up and show me someone who was lame for 38 years and who was suddenly able to walk. Then you're seeing a miracle indeed. Nothing that compares to it among these so-called faith-healers. This was the power of God bringing about a change that could only be explained by the divine power of the Son. Yes, Jesus is a mighty worker. And he is such a Sabbath worker that all the Jews are going to hear about him. The whole world is going to hear about this Sabbath worker. And that leads us to consider this mercy that was revealed that came with a message. The man went off uh, carrying his bed. Now, children, when you hear that, uh, you ought not to think that he had a big mattress and headboard and he's lugging all this stuff along. No, he wasn't He wasn't laying on a, a literal bed that we're familiar with. It was maybe a very light kind of mattress that would be rolled up or a, a pallet of some kind, something that could be easily carried by someone who could walk. He went off carrying his bed. 
And that carried a message. And the Jews were given notice of Jesus' authority. The healed man told him. The Jews therefore said to him, Who is cured? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. You see, they saw that, they, they thought that he was violating the law. Right? And it's true that the law forbids carrying burdens on the Sabbath. And we have instance in which Nehemiah really got after people that were uh, uh, desecrating the Sabbath. Why? Because they were carrying burdens. They were carrying them to the gate of Jerusalem to sell their wares. Their burdens were their commodities. And they were breaking the Sabbath by doing business. And the response of this man was, Oh, no, no, I'm not carrying this because I'm going to sell it on the market. His explanation is the man who made me well said, take up your mat and carry it. And that ought to kind of uh, confronted these Jewish leaders with uh, questions that go beyond their narrow way of thinking. In other words, they ought to ask, who was this man? If a man has power to heal like that, maybe we ought to inquire about his authority to say, carry your mattress. Is that what they do? No. They don't. They don't ask him, who is the man who healed you? We want to learn more about him. They said, who is the man who told you to carry your mattress? Because we want to get after him. You see the unbelief. You see their hostility. You see their narrow-mindedness. Their legalism. It's astounding. They didn't get it whatsoever. And this is just the beginning. So yeah, there was a message sent to the Jews. And this is kind of the beginning of uh, further discourse throughout this chapter. But we're going to look then next at the, the the message that was given to this healed man. He was given a gracious warning. Jesus came to him. After that, we're not told how long. Jesus removed himself from that place. There was a crowd there. Apparently, it was not to draw attention to this miracle in that setting. But Jesus did meet up with this man. And uh, the only thing that's recorded of what he said to him, and it may indeed be all that he said to him, was, see, you are you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Now, there are all kinds of false interpretations of, of this passage that people come up with. Even the suggestion that, well, the reason why he was uh, lame in the first place is because he must have committed some sin. So God made him lame, now he's been healed. And uh, the Lord is saying, you know, don't do not do that sin anymore, or next time maybe you'll be blind as well as lame. Right? That's not, that's not, uh, that's not uh, how we're to understand Jesus' words. In fact, in the case of the man who was lame from birth, uh, when the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that uh, he is lame, Jesus said, neither him nor his parents. That's not the explanation for lameness. Nor do we ought to we, th- we to think that Jesus... Uh, healed his body, but there is no spiritual significance to that as to its impact upon this man's life. That he was still an unbeliever. And Jesus is uh, basically calling him to repentance. Now that may be the case, but we ought not to assume that. Because that would also give a very limited uh, interpretation of Jesus' words, go and sin no more. Not the only time he says that. In fact, he always says that to people whom he has healed and forgiven. We might put it this way. Don't let your physical well-being make you careless about your soul. 
Don't be so elated with your ability to walk that you become careless about the reality of sin that is behind suffering and troubles in this life so that you walk humbly with God. Because the proof of real healing, the proof of true gratitude, gratitude for such grace is what? It's consecration. A consecration of life that is indeed turned to God from sin. And there's a message there for all of us, isn't there? It's a message of mercy to us. You know, it's hopeful that this blind man received this message because when he reported to the Jews, and again, some will say, well, he, he uh, committed a treachery here, there, here. Uh, he knew that they were looking for Jesus with ill intent, and he basically turned him over and betrayed him to the Jews. I don't believe we ought to think of that. Remember, these were the, these were the, the spiritual authorities of the day. They asked him a question. He couldn't answer them when he an, couldn't answer it. Well, then he told them. But listen to the way he tells them. He departed and told the Jews, what? That it was Jesus who made him well. He doesn't say, it was Jesus who told me to take up my mat and walk. That's what they're all concerned about. He is confronting them with the reality again of his healing. And I think that speaks well of his testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful to the Lord for countless mercies. We ought to be profoundly affected by specific ways in which God has shown mercy to us in physical, material way, tangible ways, perhaps deliverance from sickness, perhaps a rescue from some uh, serious kind of distress and, and plight. But you know that that's, that's not our assurance of heaven, right? In other words, we don't say, well, well, God delivered me, delivered me from cancer, and that's the proof that I'm saved and I'll go to heaven. God spared me from this, uh, traffic accident, and so I know He loves me, and I'm saved. No, we ought to think of those, those things with pro- profound gratitude. And if indeed we trust in God as our Savior, We take all these mercies as tokens of his love. But we don't rest our assurance on such things. When I was 12 years old, I think, I almost drowned. I was on vacation with uh, relatives, and we went swimming, and I'm out in the deep. We're on inner tubes, but I went under, and I came out, and my inner tube was gone. And I couldn't swim very well at all, and I panicked. And I started going down, and I thought I was alone, and I thought I was gone. And then I felt my cousin push his inner tube up against me from behind. He saved my life. And I can't think of that without deep gratitude that the Lord didn't take me at 12 years old. At 19 years old, I was out on a snowmobile some dark night, and I ran smack dab into a cinder plot building, head on, directly, jumped right out of my boots. My snowmobile helmet was cracked. It wasn't even my, it was borrowed. The snowmobile was loaned to me from a friend. I crawled out of that ditch and crawled to a house, but I could very well have been killed. My neck could have snapped, and I can't think of that without profound gratitude. But I went right back, even before I left the hospital, to a life of sin and unbelief and reckless rebellion. Yes, as believers in Jesus, we can look back at countless mercies with gratitude. And as tokens, of love, but we don't, we don't take such mercies in terms of physical healing and deliverance as the ground of our assurance. 
That's found only in a Savior who loved me and gave himself for me for my sins. That's only based on the Son of God who has brought me to a knowledge of myself and brought me to a knowledge of him as the one whose blood cleanses me from unrighteousness, whose perfect obedience is my standing before God whose spirit indwells me, who moves me to want to love and to serve him and to sin no more. Not to continue in sin, but to fight it and to live a life for this great and glorious Savior, the one who was bruised for our iniquities and by whose stripes we are healed. Amen.